Hi everybody, I'm Jim Ford. And I'm Chad Bokelman. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 97. Okay, so uh, so we have a very a very big episode today, Chad. And before we go into that, because it's such a big episode, I, I'm commemorating the experience by taking a drink of a very special drink. It's Green Lantern Iced Tea. <laughs> yes, Brisk has come out with a mango dragon fruit iced tea, and uh, I was able to, to finally find this in uh, 7-Eleven today. It, I have to say, it's a liter of iced tea, and it was a dollar. That's a fantastic price. I, you go into 7-Eleven, and like, you will have trouble finding anything for, for under a dollar. But uh, yeah, this was 99 cents, it's delicious, and... No, I'm not shilling iced tea. <laughs> this isn't a, a sponsorship. But I just think it's fantastic that we live in a day and age where you can go into a 7-Eleven and get iced tea with Green Lantern's image all over it. Uh, I haven't done anything quite so epic, but I, I did uh, have Doritos and Reese's at some point during this week. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, it, and it all ties in. And you know what? Maybe tomorrow I'll get Subway for lunch. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he may not have anything to do with the movie per se, but his impact was, was definitely felt on the character, which most likely did, you know, keep him living a, a, a lot longer. Uh, if it wasn't for him, the, the character would not be around, I don't, I don't think. Absolutely not, and we've hyped it long enough. I've pimped it out elsewhere on CGS. I've said it uh, multiple times in person to other people and on the forums. It is time, folks, to reveal our vague interview that we've had in the works for some time. Go for we're, it. We're interviewing the legendary Denny O'Neill. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. And um, took time out, and he's going to talk to us. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen... This is uh, Denny O'Neill. All right, we're on the phone with uh, Denny O'Neill. Hey, Denny, how's it going? It's fine. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time, and we've, we finally got this all worked out. So for those of you who aren't aware, and if you're not, shame on you, Denny O'Neill was part of the team that brought us Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Now, this was is noted for being a very historic run in comics, um, dealing with very... Uh, a lot of social issues, and uh, I want to know, uh, Denny, how did how did you guys come across tackling these social issues, especially considering uh, the Comics Code Authority and all that was going on back uh, in that time frame? Well, it came about because Julie Schwartz, on one of my weekly visits to DC Comics, said that um, uh, the Green Lantern was in trouble. And they wanted to keep publishing it, so did I have any ideas? Um, uh, I had, I, I was involved in my personal life with some social issues and had done a, a story themed on ecology for Julie in Justice League and a kind of anti-war story for Dick Giordano back when he was working at Charlton. So uh, this was not new, but um, I told 
Julie that uh, I might want to try and, and do stories themed on contemporary events. Uh, no idea who the artist was going to be, but I went home and wrote Green Lantern 76, and uh, Julie liked it and commissioned some more. And time passed, and I got a, a proof, and I saw that not only had Neil done it, but he had done, I thought, a superb job. And we were off and running. Now, some, something about these, these stories is, and I've, I've read this also in, in uh, other interviews with you, while you tackled these social issues and brought them to light, you never really offered any solutions for these issues. Well, that would have been really presumptuous. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, if, if I was smart enough to have uh, answers to those huge problems, I probably wouldn't be a comic book writer. I'd be a, uh, a leader. Oh, no, I probably wouldn't be a politician, though. I don't want to think that low. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, all I thought we might do is call attention to the problems. I, I thought maybe my it was too late for my generation because uh, we hadn't grown up. We were, had been under the impression that, you know, once once World War II was won, then it was going to be smooth sailing from then on. Hasn't worked out that way. But uh, I thought for for really bright young people, if they are aware of these problems while they're growing up, their subconscious or whatever whatever causes people to wrestle with problems might engage this. And they would come up with solutions. So it was a consciousness-raising uh, effort rather than a, uh, a proselytizing. I, I don't think Neil and I are very close on, on a lot of social political issues. But there's <clears throat> very little in that run that, that both of us couldn't agree on. Now, you said you were involved in, in your own personal life with a lot of these um, social issues and, and as far as uh, whether it was protest or did you did you view this series as your mouthpiece or or a mouthpiece? No, just... um, we tried to to balance the two characters. One being maybe even further uh, to the left than I was personally, and the other Green Lantern, just like I thought of him as the best cop who ever lived. But he was kind of obedient to authority. He uh, took his orders from really a bunch of uh, distant authority figures, uh, something I questioned at the time and question even more strongly now. Uh, but having said that, he was the best guy of that kind that ever lived. Uh, a totally good guy, uh, just uh, politically quite a bit different than, than Green Arrow. And the two of them allowed us uh, the, the, the dramatic dynamic that has now become very commonplace, like in cop movies where, uh, you know, there's the fish out of water and the grizzled old-timer uh, seems to be about half the cop shows I see have, have some of that in it. 
uh, or in them. So that, it gave us that, and it gave us uh, representatives of two different takes on, on contemporary politics. Uh, on what was a long, tortured answer. <laughs> Did I even touch on your question anywhere yeah. in there? Abs- absolutely. Jim, you have any uh, any questions about uh, anything you said? Um, uh, no, I. No. Let us let us proceed. Excelsior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you have more questions on this line, Judd? Yeah. Oh, um, actually, Denny, I was doing some digging, and I noticed uh, with your degree, uh, specifically from St. Louis University, right? Yeah. Uh, it was centered around like an English lit creative writing, uh, and this really caught my attention. Philosophy. Well, that's that's not as impressive as it looks because at that time it might still be true. Every liberal arts major had to take twelve hours of philosophy, uh, and uh, and the the requirement for a minor was fifteen hours. So if you just added one elective, and that was pretty much described which prescribed uh, which elective it would be. Then you had one of your two minors, so it was really the course of least resistance. I don't know how much philosophy I learned. It was uh, it was a Catholic institution, so it was pretty heavily weighted toward uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I don't know that we ever got uh, until that elective very much into any other philosophers. One teacher decided that the teaching of logic was not worth a whole semester. He could rack that up in about a month, which he did, and then taught us Plato for the rest of the semester, which was interesting. It was the most interesting course, uh, philosophy course I took there. But uh, I kind of had a feeling that I might enjoy philosophy if I got hold of the right kind. So uh, Mary Fran and I take a lot of teaching company courses in philosophy now. We just finished one. Uh, in fact, we're in the, in the middle of one. Teaching company is a wonderful outfit that will send you for about a hundred bucks a series of lectures uh, from the best teachers you know, around the best best teachers available. And if you like to learn, th- it's fun to know things that I, I didn't get from my education, but I, I now believe it. It's a good painless way to you know kind of keep learning things without having to travel or take tests or any of that stuff. So that's uh, I didn't know very much about. I, I can't say I know much about philosophy now. But it is an ongoing interest, and I, I probably know more than when I wrote those stories. Exactly. It, it's I ask because for me lately, it's become a personal hobby of reading philosophy and and studying up on it. And it's it's hard not to read your old stories and not think that there was some kind of uh, influence from a philosophy course. But if it was just that, then all right. I, I guess was, I can. There was a lot of. Uh, Influence like from the Catholic worker, probably. Uh, I married a Catholic worker. Catholic worker was what is, I guess, uh, an organization that operates uh, out of the Bowery on, on, well, out of the the ghetto areas of New York. 
I just realized that the Bowery's become gentrified and uh, pretty fancy. But um, it was run by this incredible woman named Dorothy Day, who did exactly what Christ said people should do. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless. And she did all of those things. But she also thought that uh, all war is bad, and that does not allow for any exceptions. So she was, uh, the Catholic workers were protesting war during World War II, which I kind of think was maybe a just war, the only one of the last century. But they had, had worked out the philosophy in some detail, and when we moved to New York, it was natural that we gravitate to them socially, among other things. But we did believe that the Vietnam War was unjust and a, a very bad idea for the country. And we probably even more strongly believed that uh, racism was uh, something that the country could no longer afford. So I didn't do as much as I now wish I had, but we did associate with those people and we went on some marches and protests and we're in a minor way involved in the peace movement. And if anything was influencing us, it, uh, it, w it would have been that more than anything I learned in formal education. Now, now Denny, when you talk about racism, uh, one of one of the most popular black characters, I would say, in comics is Jon Stewart, a character that you, mm -hmm. you yourself created. Now, when you were creating him, like, did you give any thought to the fact that he may end up becoming, like, an, uh, an icon, a role model for, for people in the future? Oh, I don't think we ever thought about that stuff at all. I don't think it would have been too healthy to think about it. And Neil had probably as much as I I did to do with creating John. I, uh, I thought probably it was a good idea to have a black superhero or two around as a, a, a baby step toward eradicating uh, the racism that was still, you know, kind of hanging around the media. Uh, there were was very little in the way of uh, black performances on television. Even in the movies, they were pretty rare. And the, the history of racism in the movies is, you know, fairly awful with those uh, poor actors in the, the 30s, 20s, and 30s, and 40s having to do caricatures of themselves just to keep working. Uh, I, I think no blame belongs to them at all. I actually, I don't think, I mean, people did what they knew to do. When I grew up in a, a lower, the uh, middle class, blue collar neighborhood in St. Louis, and we just didn't see black people at all, except if you're driving downtown, you might pass through a black neighborhood. But it was way off the radar. So all I think a lot of people knew was what they learned from the Charlie Chan movies, to cite one example. So, I mean, nobody was to blame, and that is still having said that, it was wrong. And it was high time we did something about it. So John Stewart, in addition to the usual... Uh, task of trying to create an interesting superhero was a step toward uh, diversification 
let's get a black. We have the the opportunity to put a black character into the mix. Uh, let's do it. Now, now to follow up with that question, you you took John Stewart and you you know you introduced him. You gave him a great start, and then within ten years or so, he played a, a large part in a, a future storyline in which case he was responsible for the destruction of a planet. Now, I mean, aside from racial, aside from the racial stereotypes, <laughs> what's it like to, uh, to see a character that you create like used like that? Oh, I, I go way out of my way not to see characters I create, uh, as done by other people. Uh, after I had been doing Daredevil for about six months, I was in the, habit of, of um, you know, having meals with Frank Miller fairly often, and he said that uh, he was going to have to quit reading Daredevil or quit having dinner with me because I was getting it so wrong, <laughs> and I thought I was pretty much doing his take on it, but uh, as the, what he said was partially in jest, but point well taken, um, it's always going to seem wrong to you, so... I generally don't torture myself by looking at other people's uh, interpretations of stuff that I've put a lot of work into. I, I know about these things because DC does send me still everything they publish, and because I teach courses, uh, and the students are usually very, very knowledgeable about what's going on in comics. And I, I do a number of conventions a year. So I'm aware of them, but it, it would be hard for me to, to read something like that for pleasure. It's fairly hard for me to look at the movies <laughs> for pleasure, unless they are really well done. And, and speaking of, of stuff that, that DC has published recently, they're doing a series called They're, they're Retroactive, in which you are writing Green Lantern once again. And also, yeah. and I, I found this interesting. You're you're taking a, another swing at Wonder Woman. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, how could I refuse that assignment? <laughs> Wonder Woman is the, one of the great blots on my life, and uh, there was a chance to maybe redeem myself a little bit. So the story I wrote um, involves both versions. Uh, the the uh, superhero costume and the, the jumpsuited version. Uh, you can't win them all. I, I mean, I'm amazed that DC uh, decided to reprint not not a sampling of every one of those stories uh, in paperback. I kind of wish that they had, well, maybe not had me do an introduction, but had somebody do like 500 words to explain. Uh, why the, uh, I guess the stories are reasonably self explanatory, but a, a little historical context might not have been bad. Uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> I finally got back to Wonder Woman with my hat in my hand. You know, please forgive me, Diana, and let's try it once more. <laughs> Gloria Steinem attacked the series in print, but she was generous enough not to mention me by name. I will always be grateful to Miss Steinem for that. 
And and you also said you try not to watch the movies, but uh, a while back when I had first got in contact with you, uh, we were discussing the choice of Ryan Reynolds as as Hal Jordan. And now that the trailers and the movie is almost upon us and everything, how do you feel about it all now? Uh, I don't know of anybody who has, at this point, seen a complete version of the movie. I, I talked to a movie guy about two weeks ago, and he said they were still working on some of the special effects. So they're go- we're going right down to the wire. Oh, we will undoubtedly go see it. I don't think I'm going to be invited to a screening, <laughs> and I don't think there's anything of mine in it, as far as I can tell. Looks like they went back to uh, the thing that Julie Schwartz and, and John Broom came up with in uh, 1959 or 1960, and that's good, solid science fiction. And with the inclusion of the alien Green Lanterns, it's it's certainly a natural for the kind of science fiction movies we now have. Uh, so I have no reason to believe that it it won't be. Uh, you know, a good, solid, entertaining some summer movie. And since they are not doing my version of Green Lantern, uh, I, I probably won't find it painful to watch. <laughs> oh, that's that's great, uh, Denny. Uh, when you you talk about the, a sci-fi story, the way that society has been going with the internet disseminating information much faster than ever before, and you know. The average person... Information and misinformation. Oh, that too. But with, like, the average person being more attuned to scientific developments, do you think that changes the way that science science fiction stories are told now? No, I think that the, the, the field has evolved enormously in the same way that comics have for the last 50 years. Uh, but if you believe what you read in the papers... This country isn't doing very well in science and math, and that, that should be worrying us because it has become a technological world. Yeah, you know, I've 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 read interviews with scientists who said that reading Asimov and Heinlein and Bradbury was influential in their choice of careers. So I I don't know if it's going on. Kind of science fiction that's good for movies, though, is uh, not the kind that would necessarily appeal to uh, somebody who's very detailed and technological and mathematically oriented. It just makes for terrific entertainment. <laughs> okay. As as far as um, as as approach to writing, um, I would say like even though comics are more quote unquote mainstream than recent years. Um, a negative stigma about comics still being for kids still exists, um, and I was wondering what would you say to those people who are leery about getting into comics for that reason? Oh, well, if, I mean, if by mean uh, getting into you mean professionally, well, uh, they wouldn't do that. If, uh, I, I can't imagine anybody choosing to work in comics if they didn't already know about them and like them. As for other people... Yeah, I I would, I mean, the, the only answer to that is read a few. Actually, you may not like, there are people who don't like the form. Something about the combination of image and copy in close juxtaposition 
it's you know they're not wired to like it, and that's fine. Uh, I have tried to like ballet and and failed. <laughs> Uh, there are kinds of jazz that I just don't understand and I just don't get, and other people love. Uh, but as far as the content goes, my God, there is such a wide variety of stuff available. And, yeah, there's a lot of people who probably don't like a fantasy melodrama, which is what superheroes are. But there's, uh, DC has just reprinted Stuck Rubber Baby by Howard Cruz. And that, uh, by any criterion, is a terrific coming-of-age story. Uh, just read on that level, if you like that kind of thing, it's hard for me to believe you wouldn't like Howard's book. So, you know, try it, and if you don't like it, fine. Uh, I have liked the medium of comics since I was about five years old. I married Mary Fran 22 years ago after having not seen her for 30 years and discovered that I gave her, when we were like 17, a copy, a subscription to Mad, and she'd kept it up all those years and took instantly to the comic book world. Uh, I will go to hell for that. If for nothing else, I took this sweet, innocent, sane Midwestern teacher and turned her into a raving fangirl. Uh, <laughs> mea culpa. That's great. Um as far as Green Lantern, Green Arrow goes, uh, before we move on to something else, uh, I was wondering, there's been a lot of discussion as far as specifically Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 85, the the whole um, Speedy does drugs storyline, the snowboards don't fly. Uh, and I was wondering, as far as the, the Comics Code Authority and the issue that Marvel put out around the same time, what what was all going on at that time? Which came first, and what was your involvement of all of it? Well, yeah, I was actually more involved in that than I, I might have expected to be. Um, there was a uh, a meeting that the guy who was doing the Comics Code called, and I was asked to attend. I don't exactly know why. I, I mean, there was, there was undoubtedly a reason um, may have had something to do with ACPA, the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which was still going on, and I was one of you know one of the board members or whatever one is with organizations. Anyway, I went to meeting with Stan, and I, I maybe Carmine was there, uh, the Comics Code Authority guy, and Stan Solution, which was adopted by DC in later years, was simply to do that one issue with no uh, Comics Code seal of approval. Just the one issue. Uh, we didn't anticipate any problems, and we had them. They asked Beale to change a shot in the uh, sequence. I think it's a three-panel sequence where Speedy is shooting up so that we don't show him actually putting the needle in his arm because there was a provision in the comics code that said that you cannot show in detail how a crime is committed. Well, okay, shooting heroin into your vein was a crime, still is. Uh, it's a little hard for me to believe that a junkie would have to learn from a comic book how to do it, but, uh, and then, you know, the, the topping irony was that it was on the cover. But not in the inside, I think it probably took me five minutes to alter one drawing. And about that time, the mayor of New York City got involved and wrote a text piece for us. It was 
the Honorable John V. Lindsay, one of the last of the liberal Republicans, and is, in, in my recollection, a pretty good mayor. And he did a text piece for us, well, for people who respect and believe in authority, if you have the mayor doing the, you know, putting a stamp of approval on it, it's pretty hard to argue with that. I, I, I yeah. would, I would agree. <laughs> um, switching, switching gears a little bit, Denny. Um, you were the editor on Armageddon 2001. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now that was a story in which the ending had been discovered uh, somehow by by fans, and so DC went ahead and changed the ending and uh, made the the main villain a different character. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Now, because of the the change in choice of character, um, you know, wh- why do you think? Wh- why would DC, you know, go do something like that as opposed to like nowadays they would just? I don't know. Occasionally, there were decisions made. Well, fairly often, decisions made. And while I had an astonishing amount of autonomy as the Batman editor, really, they they only once in fifteen years got in my face about anything. Uh, but in that case, I don't know. Somebody, maybe in the marketing department, probably thought that it was necessary. Was it? I don't know. Uh, today, it would probably be impossible to keep something like that a secret. Back then, it was a bit of a priority, but I don't remember the details if I ever knew them. Okay. And then uh, one of the one of the very important questions I wanted to ask you was: uh, DC is they just released information that they're going to restart uh, all of their titles. Like 52 titles are going to get new, new number one issues. Uh, yeah, brand. I you, saw that. What, what do you What do you think that means? You know, for the comic market in general and to the fans? Uh, well, that's, that's a, um, a fairly complex question. Uh, I have heard, uh, I, I mean, I'm way out of the loop. I, I mean, the planet Saturn is closer to the, the heart of the comic book world <laughs> than I am at this point. point. Uh, but I've heard that to some degree the editorial departments are beholden to the owners of comic book shops who are fans and it's true of fans that almost always they have a certain period where they think this was when comic books were being done right and as the medium passes that it seems wrong uh so i don't know how they will feel about the wholesale revamping the question editorially is well Who's doing the revamping, and how much reinvention are they going to do? When Julie and his freelancers reinvented much of the DC pantheon in 59 and 60, he really did reinvent those characters. Uh, Green Lantern is an example. He had been a character based on magic uh, and a radio uh, announcer. And in the... uh, Julie Schwartz took the same basic idea, the the empowered ring, and got rid of any hint of Aladdin, which I'm told was part of the inspiration for the original, gave it all a science fiction rationale. And then while he was at it, uh, had Gil Kane design a very contemporary costume. And that was after he'd done something with uh, The Flash, uh, also 
a genuine reinvention, and then lots of other characters followed. When there was an attempt about the same time I was, yeah, it was about 1985 or 86, to reinvent Superman, the changes were not that sweeping. They were kind of cosmetic. Minor things changed. Uh, I don't know that anybody considers that a particular success. I don't think it was a, an embarrassing failure, but it, it was not as, as sweeping and important as what Julie had done. So with this reinvention, the devil's going to be in the details. Who's doing it, and how far are they prepared to go to rethink all of these characters? Uh, it'll be an interesting six months ahead of us. <laughs> That's for sure. Chad? Well, uh, we, we, we've come up on your on your time limit here. Uh, if, if you got time for one last kind of off-the-wall question, it's up to you. Sure. Um, um, <laughs> actually, um, I'm a big Phantom Stranger fan, and I looked through your credits and saw that you wrote an issue or two, and I was wondering, how on earth does someone, with even with a background in creative writing, write for a character like the Phantom Stranger? <laughs> Well, it's, it was a job. It was pro- I mean, I was in the freelance writer business, and probably Joe Orlando asked me, may, maybe he had run into some kind of deadline problem with his regular guys. I don't know, but there was no reason for me not to do it. And I probably read some back issues and uh, thought about what this character was about, uh, what kind of story I could tell within whatever limitations there were. There, well, there probably wasn't a great deal more to it than that. I, 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 I remember those stories very dimly, but I remember them pleasantly. There was absolutely nothing not to like about the gig. And and and, and I, I know uh, Jim had one very important question he wanted to ask you about Batman. Oh, Go for it, Jim. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. That's the perfect way to close. Uh, since you you wrote the Batman Bible, uh, and uh, yep. what what do you think would be some of the funnier things that would make it into a Green Lantern Bible? Oh, I'm not even that that up on Green Lantern continuity currently, but the idea of a Bible, which is something I got from reading uh, the Star Trek TV show Bible that Stan Lee had a copy of, uh, Roddenberry wrote that. Uh, you you assume that people coming onto the job know little or nothing about the character. So you give who he is, why he does what he does, who his love interests are, if any, and, uh, you know, anything about the city, the environment. In the case of Green Lantern, you'd have, certainly have to put in lots about the Guardians. And you give that to your new writer and, and turning loose. I mean, that's, that's my editorial philosophy. Uh, define the limits of the ballpark and then hire good people and let them alone. <laughs> I don't believe in micromanagement. Uh, but it's it's part of, a, of the editor's job. It's part of what we got paid for to set the tone of the thing. These are the kind of stories we will tell. So, for example, with Batman, I put time travel stories and what I thought of as sci-fi light off limits because it, it simply clashed with 
the conception of the character that we were creating. Yeah, gotta you know, pay attention to stuff like that. Uh, is he human? Is he superhuman? If he's superhuman, there's got to be limitations, or you're gonna uh, have plot problems. So what are they? Spell them out. Um, my Bible was originally about four pages long. By the time my freelancers and assistants got done augmenting it, it was thirty-something pages, <laughs> and that was fine. As as the the uh, Batman franchise developed, new characters were introduced. Uh, it was proper that they be included in the Bible for future writers, artists, whatever. Well, we wanted to to really thank you for for taking the time out to do this interview. I know you're a fairly modest guy, um, but just for me personally and and from a lot of fans out there, um, for good or for ill, however they feel about uh, about the stories you may have told and and everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but we all collectively respect what you did uh, back then and and still do today. Um, So we really appreciate all that you've brought to the mythology especially in mythology that we all hold very close to our hearts. Well, happy to be a service. <laughs> thank you very much. That was very nice to hear. Denny, thank you very much. It's been an absolute honor. We very appreciate it. Okay. Good luck with your podcast, and um, maybe we'll talk again. <laughs> thank you, great. sir. Thank, thank you. you. So that was the great Denny O'Neill, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what would you think of that, Jim? That was – it was fantastic. He – one of my favorite episodes of uh, Comic Geek Speak was uh, back way back in the day. It was one of their earlier episodes, I believe, and they had interviewed Denny O'Neill. And it was like at that point in my comic collecting, I didn't know a lot of you know the writers and the artists and stuff like that. You know, I was just starting. To, like, I guess it was actually because of Comic Geek Speak that I started like learning more about the creators. And so I had no idea who Danny O'Neill was up until that point. And then after listening to that episode, it's like, Oh my God, he's so interesting. And, you know, here he comes on our show and, you know, like we ask him the best questions that we could come up with, but like, he just, he knocks it out of the park. Like every, everything he says, he's got like a story and every story is like, you know, it's it's very interesting. The you know the way that he tells the stories. Yeah, and and after listening to that interview, Denny only had thirty minutes or so. He went above and beyond. He he did more, a little more than that. And um, because of the time limit, he you know, and and his extensive, he's done interviews, he's done blogs, he's done documentaries. There's a whole wealth of information about the Green Lantern Green Arrow run. So basically, what Jim and I did with the time constraint was just approach it with the questions we wanted to ask. Um, obviously, we would ask a whole lot more, but you know that, that information is out there for you to find, and I'm sure that once the show goes up, we'll have maybe some kind of links to, to something out there that you can watch or read or listen to. <laughs> that, that would probably be a good idea. I, I'm so glad that we got the, the John Stewart questions in. Absolutely. Uh, like that, that to me, like... This is a really good interview. <laughs> um, and and I didn't get a chance to ask him the question. I'm almost certain this is this is 100% true. But also, Denny, I was going to ask him if it was true that he came up with the name for Optimus Prime. Oh, oh man. 
I, I'm pretty sure that's true, but don't take my word on it. But there is a rumor that I've heard that he is the the one that came up with a name for Optimus Prime. <laughs> oh man. Oh. Yeah, that was that was good. That that was uh, that was really cool, man. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess a, a little more background on Denny O'Neill. The the stuff that he worked on with uh, Neil Adams, that was a very small portion of his run. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the part that gets all the press. But like he was on for what was it like close to fifty issues? Yep. So. And, like, beyond the the issues that were, uh, I would say, more socially aware, socially conscious, um, after, you know, the, the Neil Adams run, you know, he, he went on to tell a great deal of just, you know, pure science fiction, you know, type stories. So if you, if you were ever, like, turned off because of the, you know, it was like, well, I don't want to read about, you know, drug use and I don't want to read about blah, 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 blah. If you're, you know, more into, like, you know, if you want your comics to not particularly have that socially conscious tone to it, then, you know, you still have, like, a wealth of other Denny O'Neill Green Lantern, you know, issues to read. Not to mention his other largest run would probably have to be Batman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, now, I don't, should I give the backstory for this interview Just in, and update people a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah, give, give a little bit. The background. Don't don't go too into it, but you can tell how it came about. Uh, it came about because, as most well, as most of you know, I don't even know. Uh, some of you know I was first on the show because I was trying to get a Green Lantern documentary going. Long story short, I got a lot of positive feedback from a lot of creators, made a lot of contacts that blew me away. One of which was Denny O'Neill, and for legal reasons and money reasons combined, the documentary never happened. But as, as far as my personal attachment to stories and creators, Denny is one of my idols uh, as far as comics go, comic writers go. And not to mention his, um, especially with his stories in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, I wanted to make sure I got a chance to talk to him. Um, I can't remember who, who, it said, who said it on CGS. I think it might have been Peter or, or, or uh, Brian, but... Um, you you, you want to make sure to if you see your creator your favorite creators at a con if you run into them have a chance to talk with them even if it's for two seconds you stop by and say thank you for what they do oh that's Jamie D and uh, Jamie D there you go sorry and, and you want to make sure you say thank you for for everything that they've done and yeah this was my chance to say thank you and I wanted to make sure I got that out awesome okay um, I don't really think that we could add anything else to this episode so uh it'll be a little shorter than usual but you know what it's allowed to be (laughs) so uh having said that if you want to email us you can do so at lanterncast at gmail.com or we have our individual emails jim dan chad james or jason at lanterncast.com the website lanterncast.com has links to our forum our facebook page our twitter accounts uh, it has our RSS feed and a gallery, and uh, you can also find us on iTunes. You can subscribe, send a, uh, submit a review. That'd be great. And if you want to leave a voicemail, you can do so at 708-LANTERN. Make it nice and easy. Um, anything else, Chad? Uh, that is it. Uh, look forward to a lot more episodes, and Denny said maybe we can talk to him again in the future. So as long as that window's open and... and there's, there's a lot more down the line. I can't wait. Fingers crossed. 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So long, everybody. Bye.